as you guys know, I'm I'm mostly in the Zizek, and increasingly these days the Catherine Malibu line, where it's like I'm I'm kind of giving him the benefit of the doubt uh, on a lot of these sections where it seems like he's either being, you know, an essentialist or um, whatever problematic, and uh, I'm I'm basically like no, at least my tendency when I'm reading is like no, this is actually talking about, you know, the effects of contingency on our ability to think, you know. So that that's that that's the general uh method of reading that I'm that I'm kind of running with at this point. Yeah, so I'm interested so I, I definitely want to read the Malibu that you're talking about as well as the Zizek. Yeah. Um I'm just wondering if there's something out there beyond like I mean the sort of it's really kind of s- small moments in Deleuze, um mm-hmm. And and well, Derrida. I mean, Kala is all about Hegel, and but right. but generally speaking, um, I, I kind of want to read the book, which is sort of what's terrifying and bad about Hegel, too, right? Mm-hmm. Like I want, mm-hmm. I, I'd like to, I'd like to get that book because uh, if it exists, because I do find right. myself really, really vacillating. And again, vacillating is not even exactly a great word. I mean, I'm actually just doing exactly the Hegelian movement. You know, right, right. Uh, which is I have a sort of skepticism, and then I reflect on my skepticism, and that produces a different kind of interaction. Um, mm-hmm. So, so I find it. I really do find it both fascinating and terrifying, and I'm not yet uh, clear why. I mean, all I'm effectively all I'm doing is trying to raise something from sort of sense certainty, which is mm-hmm. I have this vague sense that something's really scary about this, to like self-conscious reflection so that I can articulate what that, th- I mean, that's really all I'm trying to glean is to figure out what is, what is the, what is a precise way of rendering my uh, responses to this, both, both the fascination and, and compulsion and, and wonder and, and the like, uh, re- real strong allergic hesitation. That, that's a good point, because I think that's the one thing that especially Malibu misses. I think Zizek actually does kind of hit on the terrifying nature right. of Hegel, and that's part of what's interesting for him, and that's, right. that's what I would push even further. Like, the, the terrifying aspect is actually what draws me in. Like, it's the, it's the darkness, like the sort of ominous feeling you get from the project, the tone of the project, the structure right. of the whole thing, the language, that uh, actually draws me in. And... You know, whatever you want to say about him, you can't really critique the force of thinking, right? Oh, we were talking yeah, about yeah. that that uh, last week, and so like again, like what does that mean for us? Like right. those all those snippets that Foucault and Derrida have um, about his like long-standing influence. Like I just I'm I'm always just thinking like that. This means that we're if we're still on the horizon of his thinking, then we can never really get out of the, the identity politics bubble that Nathaniel was talking about last week. Like, there's no real way of, like, at least for me, like, in, in terms of your guys, like, sort of a, uh, not deference, but your preference for someone like Deleuze, I struggle to see the hope in, in, in a system of thought like this. Like, the, the Nietzsche, and even there's, like, more hope in Nietzsche than there is in Hegel, mm-hmm. you know? See, I just, I don't think of it, I mean, I don't think of it as hope, I just think of it as joy, you know, yeah. um, it's, it's, but I mean, we'll have to sort of parse that out as, as we go along. If nothing else, one of the things that this lends me towards, I remember having this conversation with uh, John Storr, who's a, a philosopher at uh, Emory, 
and he's a pragmatist. And I remember having a conversation with him at one point, and it's like, I mean, his claim, and I, I kind of agree with it, although I didn't really understand it at the time. It was a while ago. He's like, look, it's it's kind of you know the question of philosophy and which philosophers, you know, you follow or that you're inclined towards. It's truly no different than a question of do you like heavy metal or rap or country. It, it it's just no different. You know, it it is in that sense. It's just a kind of dispositional. You know, it's obviously kind of cultural, uh, but dispositional as well in terms of there isn't a question of one of them being right. It's just like. Hey, I like uh, I like drum beats. They compel me, as opposed to I like electric guitar. I'm thinking of the D Dave Chappelle thing of like white people can't dance and John Mayer playing guitar and all the white people dance, right? <laughs> like mm -hmm. uh, you know, with electric guitar versus uh, drums versus you know keyboards, and it's it is that kind of taste preference. And yeah. you know, while we want to think of the cognitive as being something elevated or distinct from that. That's actually what it is, you know, mm -hmm. is, is just a sort of different variation of a taste question. Yeah, your point about like sort of deconstructing your own taste and your own uh, sort of whatever preference for, for some of these thinkers. I mean, just just like a very simple kind of diagnosis of myself. Like, no, we never read Hegel in, in right. classes. No, Hegel is nobody's like boy really in rhetoric. Right. So I think right. uh, for, you know, just an arbitrary, maybe even a kind of vulgar contrarian reason, I just sort of chose him, uh, like chose yeah. to follow that path. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I get, I, I actually quite get that. I mean, I, I remember when I was in grad school, I did a similar kind of thing. I remember one point I spent like a month just kind of going around and my primary guiding thought was, what's wrong with metaphysics? Like, why is everybody trying to beat up on metaphysics or probably, like, what's wrong with metaphysics? Um, and, you know, like, for exactly that kind of contrarian, although contrarian is a little too strong of a term, I wasn't taking mm -hmm. a dogmatic position, and neither are you, right? Which is just, well, let's presume, why do we presume that this is a bad figure or a bad movement? You know, why do we right. presume? And, and I look, look, even for someone like me that feels, you know, kind of very much, an affinity for uh, a, um, a quasi-oppositional discourse to the Hegelian, I'm, in, I'm fascinated by the Hegelian thing. And I, I really, I find myself like really drawn and compelled. Um, and I do, I mean, remember I told you the story about Charles Scott last time, and it's, I, I, I kind of get what he's saying, which is like, it's compelling and fascinating, and yet it's something that I, I, kind of want to keep it at arm's length because it's kind of like once you enter into the logic of it there is no exit and and so to me that's a really important caution for why not to enter into the logic of it like I just don't I don't trust things that explain everything I just have a um, for whatever reason it just makes me it makes like psychoanalysis I feel the same way about psychoanalysis because psychoanalysis can explain everything and I'm like, I kind of, I just don't trust things that can, and by, by the way, not that it's wrong. It's precisely that it's absolutely right about every goddamn detail that I go, mm -hmm. you know. It becomes such a, a tool to then implement and, and then uh, produce thoughtless actions from, right? A uni like a universal hermeneutic. It's, uh, yeah. you know, I mean, I think of the claim Nietzsche made in Ecce Homo about Birth of Tragedy, where, uh, I mean, he, he said, like, 
you know, he says it smells offensively Hegelian, but there's also a comment there about like something that it fits neatly into every schoolboy's system. That's that's how he thinks of the the Hegelian dialectic is it's it's a kind of schoolboy system that anyone and that there are like legions of philosophers running around doing sort of the dialectical movement thing, and it's 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 undoubtedly infinitely generative. It just doesn't seem like it's generative of anything different, right? Mm-hmm. That it, it just shows you new moments in the in the sort of motivation of spirit. Yeah, and and that whole the whole hesitance around that totalizing impulse um, that we've been talking about. I mean, you see, you see Butler reckoning with that, like in almost all of her, especially yeah. her earlier books, Bodies of Matter, um, and her first book, Subjects of Desire. And it's the move that she makes is the one that I think we're saying you basically can't make. And she tries to call them out for being wrong. Um, right. Both, yeah. well, especially Lacan. She's like, this is, right. this is too totalizing. It doesn't actually fit logically um, into this system. We need to, you basically insert historicity into this right. to account for contingency as opposed to just alighting it or destroying it. And it's like, right. you can't call them out for that because it's, it's always incorporable. Like the, the way that it's, it's framed in both Lacan and in Hegel, the, the whole idea of concrete universality is the, yeah. the, like the toggling between those two, the constant right. like sort of pressure and balance between those. So Butler's way out is like not really uh, tenable. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that's an interesting way of thinking because, I mean, I was saying it sort of that way, but I like the notion of toggling between the concrete and the universal, which I always thought of as like, it's either a moment or it's, you know, it's either a moment or it's part of the process. And it was shifting back and forth between those two. And maybe that kind of gets it that I, I feel like a toggle, meaning the sort of both and, that's not a very mm-hmm. good resolution of, of a problem. Um, or it's, it's kind of a, I mean, I think not in, he- not in Hegel because I, f- I do still find it fascinating, but I, you read that move a lot where people are, scholars are faced with like whatever the little decision is in their area. It's like, well, it's either this or it's that. And their solution is almost universally, well, it's both. And I'm like, well, Jesus, that doesn't, I mean, to me, that's always a unsatisfying answer. Yeah. Not because it's wrong. But just because it's so easy, it's like that doesn't really sort tell you anything. Boring, yeah. yeah. Form is content. Like, what does yeah. that do for like, you? Like, oh, yeah. great, form is content. Now, like, that doesn't. <laughs> so, I mean, again, I feel like what they are failing to do there is is assume the responsibility for building something different. You know, for building a, a different conceptual edifice, they're just saying, given the conceptual edifice and the existence of binaries, uh, we just take both. And I'm like, well, that just brings all of the pro- for me when I hear that you know, whatever problems exist on each side of that binary, you're just importing all of them now for, for both sides. So you're not solving a problem, you're just having double the number of problems. You know, it's either subjective well, it or like, objective, it's both. Like, eh. It's like the, it, you need the first step, right? That's the first step to say that they're, you know, it's, it's both and, but it doesn't go far enough because like, that it erases it. It doesn't say, okay, what is the particular way these two things are connected? And right. it's the, the particularity of that connection. So, you know, the, the, the kind of toggling that we're talking about here is, you know, the, the very specific way that the moment is connected to the, it gets universalized into a transcendent process, right? right. And like, it's, it's, 
you know, the both and move is so unsatisfying, I think, because it's constantly saying, you know, this doesn't hold and then it doesn't make the next step and say, here's how the binary is affected and yeah. what kinds of things spin out from it. And, and my inclination recently, and maybe for the last couple of years even, I haven't really noticed it, uh, is to lean into the term that we're not supposed to mm-hmm. endorse. Like, mm-hmm. so as opposed to difference, I'm leaning into unity or I'm leaning into right. totality, universality, subjectivity, transcendence, all these terms that we're supposed to have basically done away with. Like, mm-hmm. I, I've, I've tasked myself for whatever reason, like, how do we ring or, uh, you know, get a, a, an actually, um, not responsible, but interesting version of thinking conceptuality or contingency out of those concepts? Mm-hmm. And at least at a, you know, at a basic level, it's by leaning into them, like reflexively, like you constantly turn those over and see how they're affecting your thinking. You don't just refuse transcendence, right? right? Like you, you, if you do that, you're, you're ignoring uh, that tendency in yourself, in your, in discourse and thinking. So yeah, that's where I've been at. It's like, how do you, how do you hang on to the, uh, I'm thinking of this just because I read uh, um, Amber's chapter on mon- the monument stuff. I, you've read it, Nate. I, uh, um, yeah. And so, you know, the critiques of the Confederate monuments are that this is a very exclusionary version of history. And we want, in, in the terminology of the protesters, we want a more inclusive version uh, of that history. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, that, you know, that more inclusive version means not more inclusive, just differently inclusive. So, mm-hmm. for instance, here's one of the things that they believe needs to be excluded, white nationalism, right? <laughs> That's something that needs yeah. to be excluded. For the, and politically, I 100% agree with that. But I also recognize that's an exclusion. You know, that you're, you're saying we no longer find, you know, white nationalism acceptable. So how can you create a monument that both holds on to the white nationalism behind the Confederate statues and a critique of the white nationalism, right? Like, how do you, right. how do you hold on to both of, the, both of those things? And it, it seems, I mean, in each particular case, I mean, I think that's where Nathaniel's exactly right. It's how do you connect the things that, that matters? And that's where I go, come back to the, like, what do you make? What comes out of it? It's not just a question of saying, we need to stop excluding and we need to resolve it. And that's just, to me, that's just silly. You know, right. everything is exclusion. And let's just... It's a question of how and with what effects. But that's where Nate, Nate my thought process, because that's exactly how I was in grad school, which is the, the term that everybody is suspect of is the one that I wanted to kind of lean into. And f- mm. for me, what changed in that regard was that, and, and I still have that. So it's still like in terms of personal thought experiments and personal collections, but I, or personal uh, uh, orientations, like I am still mm. like, I, I do like that move. Um, but for me, it is actually sort of history and cultural context. So here, you know, my response would be, there's nothing intrinsic to unity that makes it a, a, a bad concept. It means that you can't do the work of contingency with it. We just live in a moment uh, and have lived in a moment in which unity is, has been mobilized in ways that makes it unhearable to think about the contingency of unity. And so if you want to do the work of contingency, unity is not going to get you there, not because of anything intrinsic to the concept, but just because of the economy in which the concept tends, tends to work today. You know? Right. Well, it's so. about 
how you're interpreted most it's like That's if you right. do the work if you do the work you can get it out of those terms absolutely this is like right. this this is the issue with reading Zizek it's like if you just gloss Zizek you'll be like oh he's a fascist weirdo like piece of shit like that's right. just there's all these strains in his thinking that you could if you just take them out of context you're like well he doesn't have the best interests of anyone in mind he doesn't even have his own interests in mind like he's just a nihilist like these are common readings of him and it's if you actually dive into some of his better texts you know less than nothing that are better than the, the sort of popular text like right. he's there's a there's a rigor to that that you can't ignore at least at least for me. Yeah. And uh I mean I agree. You know, you know, I agree like it can be done. I mean this is where so Derrida is quite good on this. He's like concepts in and of themselves aren't metaphysical. There's metaphysical work that's done with concepts. And so any con I mean that's what I always say to grad students in writing their dissertations is no concept is going to buy you out of the problem. Like, by, like, oh, now we're going to talk about hybrids, or now we're going to talk about ecologies, or now we're going to talk about networks. Like, the, the premise for a lot of people is that by changing the content of the concept, we've changed the system. And it's like, no, you've just added another concept into the system. That, that it, it is a question of how the concept, or how any particular concept works, and how you make it work. Uh, mm -hmm. And so, I, I mean, I agree with you. Can something be done with unity, transcendence, all of these kind of dated old concepts? Of course it can. Mm -hmm. the, 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 the different question is, what's the point of doing that, right? Like, w what does one gain by, by taking one of those sort of traditional old terms? Or, and, and also, like, can, can it even be hearable? Right, which is a, the tr most traditional rhetorical question. Like, can you get people to think of this thing that they've spent their whole lives having an antagonism towards, you know, can you get them to overcome that antagonism? And is it worth it? Or is it not easier to just, for instance, for the longest time, I didn't, I really disliked the word affect because I always felt like it's just a stand-in for the word emotion. And most people, when they use affect, they just mean emotion. Again, can Deleuze and Spinoza, can others ha do and have done interesting things with the concept? Absolutely, right? But for the most part, it just felt like everyone was glomming onto affect because it wasn't thinking and it wasn't mental and it wasn't all of those things. And it really just became a stand-in for emotion. But then there was a point for me where, like, and now in this book, like, I have just written a thing on affect where I'm using... I'm just taking it on because it's finally like, what the fuck is the point, right? Like, uh, why fight against this emphasis on affect when I don't really have, I don't really care, you know, per se. I just don't like the way that it's so easily conflated with emotion uh, by, by many folks, you know, so. This is what's so maddeningly frustrating about publishing at the moment is that the introduction of concepts and especially the introduction of the right concept that we should be thinking with over the old problematic concept is the best way of getting published and it's yeah. not just yeah. a symptom of the academy i mean it is you know i, I think you use this language in that in your latest PNR piece that you wrote. That's like you need to get a product to market, and that product yeah. needs to be recognizable, and it needs to have a some familiar foil or opposition. And mm -hmm. like, so you know, I I wonder what are the best ways of forcing 
thinking to happen when you're not when it's not otherwise gonna happen and the one way of doing it is to you know obviously be oppositional or take on the last champion term and show how it's you know thinking isn't all that bad um and the other way is to jump inside of the favorable term and make it do unexpected things um but both of those you know, yeah, they, they, they are more or less inclined to different kinds of years and, you know, it's a, ta- a it's a tactical, there. it's a tactical question, right? Like, yeah. I mean, you know, which, which battles do you want to fight with which groups in a sense, you know? I mean, in my experience, I, I know it doesn't seem to matter which one I take. This is just a sign of my own immaturity and trying to do those things is that usually what I say gets reduced to something that I wasn't trying to do and I become the opposition or I become the, the, the preacher to the choir and the, the subtleties just aren't heard. And, you know, whether that's because I'm not articulating the subtleties well, well enough or that the, the, the ear is just not capable of hearing them, I don't know. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, this is I something mean, that I would like to do in this group is try to practice those moves. Well, not, not only is thinking not required by the publishing industry, like broadly speaking, but it's almost forbidden if you're going to latch on to some of these terms. Like if you're going to simply latch on to affect or relationality as yeah. basically what turns out to be your God term. That's, right. that's the new, that's the new, uh, that's the new concept that solves the problems of reason and rationality. Like that's been the basic move. I don't know. It seems like in the last decade, uh, at least in, in rhetoric and composition, it's like if you if you simply lean into the the foil of one of Hegel's or Descartes' concepts and you lean into difference, you're just reproducing um, that same system, and and you're not even realizing that. And that's that's basically you go all the way back to Hegel, you find a critique of that move, um, when, of his, in his critique of the intuitionists. It's like this. It's just this constant. I mean. That's yeah. sort of the dialectic as well. That's the, like the kind of vulgar uh, movements of debate where you're just latching on to positions and you're on, I'm on team affect, you're on team reason, and nobody gets anywhere. Right. Um, well, here's a, a concrete example of that. Is that um, you really need to account for the criticisms that new materialism has um, undergone for not um, acknowledging it's that it is hitting on these um, concepts that indigenous wisdom has hit on long, long before. And that drives me crazy, not because there's not worth to, to indigenous concepts or that there isn't a similarity between the two, but because it focuses all of the emphasis on, okay, this concept and this concept are similar, therefore we should be spending all of our time showing how these two things are similar, rather than trying to activate each one in different milieu to see what they do. So it becomes much more of a policing kind of work, and don't think about it, just see these two things that are different shades of each other, they're really the same thing, versus see what each one, again, see what each one can do when it's been activated. That, that's a really great example for me to explain what I'm saying about my du- the current understanding of a duality or the relationship to Hegel is uh, I, I would say, you know, you, you keep hearing, I've, I've heard the phrase a lot in the last couple of years of like, uh, 
um, what is it, anti-racist citational practices, right? Yeah. And, and I had the same kind of dual response to it, which are really both genuine. One is on the on the one hand, I go, you know, this is a symptom of s- such an attuned, thoughtful uh, uh, approach to politics that we're now even paying attention to the things that we cite, right? And and the ways in which our citational practices create traditions. And I'm like, that's really interesting and a thoughtful place to, to locate politics, right? In your fucking work cited, in the in, you know index or whatever. Um, the other part of me, in terms of how it's often deployed, is this is a scary fucking fascistic policing move to, you know, and I and and that's exactly my response to the Hegel thing as well, which is like this is both really interesting and compelling and indicative of a really interesting thinking about look politics. I mean, it's true. What's true? Work cited does produce traditions, right? It does, but not not directly. It's not like my work cited becomes you know. But that's the way that traditions get performatively enacted was which is which things people engage and then the which things they feel obligated to engage right so that's an interesting place to locate politics on the other hand most people like what you're just saying are like well you need to account for this other thing out there and it's like well why right i mean what what i mean i'm not saying that there's not value to that thing but someone else can write that right someone else can write something there's nothing in a thing that i'm doing that prevents anyone from doing those things, it just doesn't facilitate it either, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so why, why does any, like, your, the essay that you're talking about, why does that person have to account for it? Now, again, if they're making claims about new materialism, then that's a broader, you know, it is a broader question because they're entering into a terrain that's been contested, but... Well, it, it, they weren't really entering. They, they were entering it from a, from a pretty specific vantage point. But what, what frustrates me about it is it seems to impoverish both traditions by saying that they're the same. Right? Well, and, and if you well, only yeah. look at the level of the, the concept, you can probably get away with a version of that as long as you allied a certain number of differences. right? Because at a certain point, ecologies, networks... All this kind of stuff, you know. If you if you generalize to a certain degree, they're all the same thing. But you know, it, it, to to say that you know axis is just a version of y seems to just do away with the value and the power of both x and y. And while I would, you know, I'm I'm all for encouraging scholarship that would explore, you know, indigenous orientations to these things. I don't think that the way of of, of um, uh, encouraging and facilitating that scholarship is by forcing differences to be alighted and saying some like someone got but that's there how first. differences but that's how differences I mean this is back to what we were talking about before Nate said before is like yet difference so if difference is the kind of God term of the last 30 years you know but difference as it's mobilized in say Derrida is a different kind of difference than difference yeah. as it's mobilized in, because difference in the usual way in which it's mobilized is identity. I mean, it, it yeah. is, right? Like, it, it literally means the opposite of what it has historically meant. So mm-hmm. people talk about recognizing, appreciating, and respecting differences. They're not talking about differences. They're talking about identities that are different right. from yours. Um, and, and so that, that's the... That is the oscillation, even within the concept of difference, where, like, well, being on team difference doesn't 
tell you much, right? Because you could you could be in any possible political position, you know. Mm-hmm. So, but even even being on team difference, even if you have sort of a a, a basic sophisticated understanding of Derrida, simply endorsing difference or right. you know no that version of getting behind identity. That's still not the move for me. Like it's just not. Yeah. It's not satisfying, and it replicates that movement, even if it's more sophisticated. That's my issue with Barad and people like that. Is they, you know, whatever. Maybe they misread Derrida or not, but it's that. It's it's the it's the latching onto the term at the expense of of the other one that that doesn't seem to make sense to me. It's it's like the nature culture thing. Like you can't at least you're saying like you can't have it both ways with Hegel. Um, well, it's like, why not? I, I literally don't think Barad can have it both ways with some of these, like, collapsing of the oppositions. Um, yeah. It's too... For me, it's too, it's too materialist. It's like a naive, basic empiricism for me. Right. Yeah. Um, I, and I, I mean, I, I get that. I mean, I, I do. And it's, so it, it, the interesting thing, Nate, for instance, in terms of the Barad thing specifically, is I actually totally agree with your critiques. I just don't think that they're important. Because, and, and that's not because they're yours or anything like that. That's just like I'm willing in that case to say, yeah, those critiques are right, but they don't matter because the key intervention point is this other thing, which is the primacy of thinking relationality. You know? And so she's offering you know, an attempt, like everyone is, mm-hmm. an attempt at ways of thinking relationality. And so I glom onto that and I ignore, and I'm not saying this is right. I'm, in fact, saying it justifies your position. Is it like mm-hmm. I'm going to ignore some of the stuff that is questionable or problematic? Because, you know, as Hegel teaches us, everything is questionable or problematic, you know? So, right. so you just, it's the strategic emphasis on where, what are the things that I'm going to sort of incline positively towards and give the, as you say, the benefit of the doubt and read more generously. Because the truth is, if you were to read everything generously, things would actually be pretty indistinguishable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know. Well, there's plenty of there's a, there's a Hegelian impulse in Barad. I mean, just to be clear, I I love reading Barad, but again, it's with that oppositional um, sort of yeah. adversarial impulse. I think I'm reading her carefully. It's just like she obviously wouldn't really enjoy. I'm, I'm guessing some of my responses Maybe. if she were to ever happen upon them. But I think you know you can you can still produce something um, worth reading or, or useful in that orientation towards her. If she's a symbol for this basic turn towards relationality, like, I don't know, I, I feel, I haven't really read, I have not read a long, um, you know, sustained critique of Barad. Right. It's all deferential towards her. Right. Everything that I've read, right. uh, at least in our field. So that, that's, maybe that's an interesting thing, for me at least, that what you just said could sort of typify what I'm trying to get at in terms of reading Hegel, which is, overcoming the adversarial inclination in reading. And what's really interesting about Hegel is that he both solicits, I mean, he solicits that adversarial relation, and then he incorporates it, right? And so, Mm -hmm. and and that's what's interesting to me is because there's no move that you can make that he has not anticipated. Mm -hmm. And so I realize in myself that the desire for an adversarial position is the thing that he's refusing. He's like not going to let you have a simple right. adversarial position that's not already sort of subsumed or going to be incorporated in, in the system. And that's the thing 
the, the, the absence of an adversarial position is what I'm adver averse to. <laughs> right. Uh, the, and what was I going to say? Barad, you know, my, my orientation towards her, um, I think stems from this basic, you know, method of reading. I think I can, I think, I don't know. I, I think I can get something useful out of my engagement with her. Like, so th this is why my, I've been latching onto in like last week in some of our conversations, his critique of empiricism, because it almost seems like I can just like, okay, take, take it, this critique, right, apply it to Barad, right, right, or apply right. it even to someone like Deleuze if you wanted to tease some of that stuff yeah. out. Yeah. Like, it's literally all there. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I, I think that you're right. I mean, that's, that's where I come back to the country music versus hip hop versus, you know, heavy metal or whatever. It's like, these are sort of, I mean, to, to me, I just continually return to, it's just a kind of what sensibility or tonal disposition or something mm -hmm. that is the, the, that's the quote unquote real difference among these things. Cause a jet, like a generous reading of, of Barad or anybody else. I mean, I, I find that if you do that, see, here's the thing for me is you guys know me from mostly from my sort of talking in class or whatever. Like I'm incredibly dismissive of things conversationally, but write for writing for me, I never do that. Like I very rare, not never, but I mean, I very rarely critique things like the whole invention book was for the most part, avoiding sort of critique in that, in that sense. And I, I just found that if I don't have anything generative or productive to say about something, then I just don't talk about it. And so I'm not going to mm. distinguish this thing from another thing. I'm just going to talk about this thing. I'm just going to make this, in my case, like affirmative sense of invention. I'm just going to make this, you know, but I'm going to, on the one hand, like what I do in that book with the dialectical version is to say that's part of it. And it's also not all of it. And what I'm interested in is this, uh, you know, the things that it's not that are not fully incorporated into it, um, and I just I just want to make that. But I, one could do that to me, right? And and it's just a question of I, increasingly I'm like, well, I just want to take the shit that's cool and generative, and just assemble those things together, and then make whatever sort of conceptual edifice from that without having to set it in relief against something that it's not, you know. Um, well, this is something I've been thinking about a lot since um, we read the, the Deleuze, Nietzsche, and philosophy book. Um, is our, our different styles of getting a text or, or um, orienting toward another in order to prompt its response. And, uh, you know, you were just talking about generous reading there. And I sometimes, you know, think about what passes as generous reading. Uh, well, you, had, you had said... You know, if you're if you read everything sufficiently generously, then the distinctions just start to disappear, and there are ways in which that those distinctions start to disappear in very valuable and productive ways, and then there are ways in which it's because something has just simply been appropriated, and everything is what I wanted to say, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And so I was thinking about: is there a, a way on the critical side that doesn't have to like? Can you critique or to use the language that um, you know, Nietzsche and, and Deleuze were using, can you attack something without hypostasizing it yeah. and showing some kind of gap? And yeah. I, I, you know, I'm less and less con convinced that, that, that that's impossible, that 
that you know a generous reading can be an attacking reading that forces some kind of response from the text. So it's really just the, the, the next question is, if you're going to read something affirmatively or generously in the way that, John, you typically talk about it, then you have to allow its difference to affect and redirect you, right? To see, so whatever comes out of it has to be in some ways both a surprise to you and the text. But the but same thing. I agree with you, but how can you know, right? Like, I mean, I, I agree with you in terms of describing the dynamics of that, but how do you know if that's what's happening or if you are merely appropriating a domesticated yeah. version thereof? Like, you, you wouldn't, right? I don't think so, you get to know in advance for sure. Or even we're not even in, not even after the fact. Like after the yeah. fact, like did I do a generous reading? You know, I don't fucking know. I mean. Uh, but, so, for instance, when you tell me about Zizek's reading of Hegel, like that you've been using, I what I think of that is well, that's a generous or productive reading. Those are the terms that I always use of Hegel, and can that be done? Absolutely. Is there value to doing that? Absolutely. Um, is that right and more interesting? Probably. You know, again, the question of right, I don't really, you know, know what right. that means, but but still, and and I think that here's what I'd rather traffic in. I'd rather traffic in. And this, to me, was is a lesson I learned from Derrida. It doesn't; it's, he's not the only place to get it. But like, when you're going to attack something, go after the most sort of generous. Uh, give it every possible benefit of the doubt before you attack it. And I've found in in my thinking that when I do that, when I give it the benefit of the doubt, and I, and I give it its generous reading, I I lose the ability to attack it. Right, like because it's not this distinct hypostasized, as you said, thing anymore. It's actually so diffuse, and I suddenly go, I don't see how Hegel and Deleuze are really different, uh, mm. you know, and and so I just I, I lose the the attacking thing, or or maybe the attack is being done at such a sort of imminent level that mm. in reconfiguring Deleuze to Hegel to Hegel to Deleuze or whatever that uh, um, you know, the attack doesn't look like what we normally think of as an attack, which is two external things meet, you know, meeting one another. You know? Well, that, that's definitely right. I mean, when you're really in the weeds with a text, even if the, the initial orientation is oppositional, you're going to get to the point where, like in Derrida, like in his reading of Husserl, like yeah. where the, the thinking is indistinguishable from you know, the person you're critiquing. From the object, and right. So, but... But the, some of Derrida's best writing is is when he's in that attack yeah. mode, and yeah. I I learned more about Husserl in in that in his, his sort of book on him than I have ever reading Husserl. So, so it's right. like you can you can gain a lot out of uh, out of those kind of uh, adversarial orientations again if you're really getting into the technical conceptual material because then you're actually invested in it. You're not just aiming to destroy it. Right. Right. Well, it, I mean, as long as you're not aimed at showing where it fails or where there are gaps, that if, you know, in the sort of, uh, literal is the wrong word, but the very rigorous reading of the thing that, you know, attacks it or just intensifies it, like just follows it very rigorously to say like, oh, this thing is way more interesting than I thought it was because it does something I didn't expect or does something that perhaps even the author doesn't expect or wouldn't, wouldn't expect. You know, you get those little lines from Derrida in spite of Plato or in virtue of some kind of ironic foresight or, you know, who really cares? But the who really cares matters because if you simply say, you know, that's one of the, the beefs that I have with Derrida sometimes is that 
he does residually rely on this notion of intention. In order to be able to claim that you're reading someone against a grain, you're presuming that there's a grain. And, and I get that the grain is the sort of historical reception, right? I mean, and I understand that that's a reasonable way of saying this. At the same time, once the person writes, I mean, this would be a Derrida claim, once that Plato or whoever the figure is writes, it's no longer Plato, right? So it's no longer a question of simply you know, this guy. It's a question of writing. And because it's a question of writing, there, isn't, there really isn't a sort of who they really are. And, and that's where in the terrain that we're dealing with, you do, you always have to do labor or some kind of work, right, uh, in order to, you know, at least for me, make some of those things, in order for me to read them generously, it requires effort on my part. Whereas, for instance, to read Nietzsche generously doesn't require any effort. I just sort of, you know, or maybe I've just done that effort over so many years that it doesn't feel like effort anymore. Where it's just like, yeah, of course he said that anti-Semitic thing there, but that thing is going to be countered by all of these other things in other places. Um, so I just, I, I def immediately do this sort of deferential, generous, generous read, whereas I'm looking with the Hegel, I'm like, this thing pisses me off. Like, I see a moment that pisses me off, and I'm like, yes, I know that he's anticipating that it's going to piss off and that my response is also incorporated, but it takes me time to get there, you know? Um, that it's the process of, of in, in many ways, it's the process of disconfiguring Hegel or whoever that you're reading away from them being a person writing from a position to being writing, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the, the issue... The, the, the main, why Barad's important to me is because she's symptomatic of a certain, you know, empiricist orientation. And that orientation, what it, the, the temptation to reach for a ding on zik, a thing in itself, mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. think that you're writing about the world and that you're not writing about discourse, that mm -hmm. temptation to move past the complexity of the concept of, of conceptuality of discourse of language is so strongly felt today. Like, the, the, the turn to materiality, the, yeah. the critique yeah. of the linguistic turn, that's so, it's basically just a given now. We've moved right. past the, the, the concept, we're now into all these other things. Let's write about the world. Let's, let's collect a bunch of, uh, you know, material things and, and, and just say stuff about that. Uh, instead of what Hegel says right at the beginning, I think, of the phenomenology, you're not you're not investigating the thing which is really at stake, which is how you interface with the world and, and with discourse. Right. Well, I think here's one reason why we're so invested in moving beyond the concept and beyond discourse is that one thing that happened within that discourse is people got pretty comfortable with the idea that discourses exist, right? And that concepts right. exist. And yeah. as soon as th that gets hypothesized, you know, then you can be done with it and then you can think, ah, oh, right. discourses are somehow different than the world and, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. But that's, yeah, the, the, that, that's where, you know, as I start pushing on this, that's where, I mean, and, and Nate alluded this to, to this before of like, you know, when you were saying you could take this critique from Hegel and just apply it to Barad, that's where, for me, that thinking is what leads me down the road of this fucking history thing is way overblown, right? Like we really, really, really have been having the same conversations for as long as we've been having conversations. The, mm -hmm. the terminology shifts, the milieu shifts, but like the, the dynamic is that in, in a sense, nothing has changed, right? Which I get is a totally Hegelian, you know, it's, it's uh, but, but there's no 
pr progress to this history. There is just mm -hmm. shifting. You don't even want to say ebbs and flows because there aren't two sides, right? It's it's much more multiplicitous. So you see, now I'm in Deleuze. <laughs> right, right. Well, and I don't want to get too too far into my project right now, but the the emphasis on the, the empiricist mindset um, for me is just so so strongly felt that it, it feels like you need a response to that right now. Yeah. Um, that, that like, I don't know, it just, it, it feels like we're leaning into a mode of thinking that is both necessary and, it, for me, problematic. Like, mm -hmm. th the problem with empiricism is not what it does, because it does plenty of good things. Yeah. It's, it's literally the basis of, like, you know, certain forms of scientific progress and technological progress. You need that mode of thinking. It's, it's, it's what it thinks it's achieving past that. It's, it's, it thinks it's doing something other than just being useful. It thinks right. it has the answers to how the world works, and that's where the arrogance uh, of someone like Barad is distasteful for me. Yeah, I get, I get that, but so, I, and I get what you're saying in terms of the connections. But let me say, I also feel like the empirical portion of Barad is, I, I get why you're saying it's, it's, it's the thing that's driving the turn to the materiality and the objects. But the empirical part in terms of scientific knowledge is one that like almost no one that takes her up even talks about that, right? Like they're not concerned with the sciences, you know? And, right. and most people, yeah. or not everyone, I'm sure there are physics-oriented mm -hmm. people, but, but by and large, it, it seems to me that the actual s scientific part of what Barad is, is doing in there is just something that is kind of ignored and glossed over and not even engaged, you know? You're right. You're right. Sorry, I feel like I'm a little all over the place, but That's right. um, the there's many flavors of empiricism, you know. Yeah. And sure. Bar Barad's empiricism can get easily translated to a sort of more general emphasis on relationality. So that's yeah, where yeah. The, con the conceptual material just kind of really nicely slides over into the humanities proper, as opposed to just being in, in physics or theoretical physics. Right. right. You know. So, so it makes me want to go back to John's suspicion of history, right, writ large, because, um, you know, the, the, there, there are sort of like two notions of this historicity that I think that you were bringing up. and. One is the inescapability of the Hegelian notion of of, of history, wherein um, you know yes, there is this teleo teleological progress, but everything is incorporated in, into the whole, right? And so history matters there, not um, well, history, history matters there for a very different reason than I think what you're talking about, which is. Um, you know, I don't think we're just having the same conversations over and over again. And, but I also don't think that we're progressing towards something or we're progressing away from things. But I think that we are, there are constantly new alliances between different kinds of writing that um, create different senses. So, you know, as Nate was saying, empiricism isn't empiricism isn't empiricism. Like, it, when you zoom out to a certain level, yeah, it's all empiricism or it's all whatever. But as soon as you zoom in and figure out, all right, you know, this particular kind of empiricism only is able to come out of these kinds of particular alliances, which then 
intones this particular sense, which then allows it to, you know, connect to other kinds of things. That kind of stuff matters, and that kind of, like, I, I take it where Nate is, is concerned is that a particular species of empiricism is get, gets generated out of Barad that allows itself to become allied within rhetoric and composition fields in some unnerving ways. And, you know, the, I think the Hegelian movement would be saying, that's fine, it'll, it'll self-negate and transform. But right. the other thing to say is like, that's gonna, like if you don't take up that position, then that can become kind of scary because it leads to just a brand of, of, of empirical totalitarianism. And as a total aside, you know, it's, it's what worries me about all of the um, sort of like return to truth in an age of misinformation age, not because I'm down with misinformation. I mean, like, that's, you know, obviously the most present and immediate target. I'm worried about a backlash that turns to the sanctity of truth and fact and, you know, trustworthy news in a totally fascistic way. You know, that's that's two steps down, so I'm not expending a ton of energy. And and related to that, this is a similar thing. Like, I get... Nate's disposition towards uh, against the kind of what we would call the material component of ret comp. Um, I'm still, or I grew up in a time in which you just couldn't talk about stuff in the field of rhetoric because rhetoric was language. And mm-hmm. I mean, even anyone's efforts to do so. I mean, I remember when Debbie, you know, the, the bodily stuff, and she was getting those responses, and this is 20 plus years ago, you know, and people were like, that's not really rhetoric because you're not talking about language. And mm-hmm. so, so that's where for me, for instance, just given my itinerary through this thing in this field, um, I'm willing to overlook the kind of sloppy applications, what I would say conceptually sloppy applications of new materialism, because I see them as part of this thing that's complicating the, ling- the language-centered fetishizing that is the field of rhetoric and composition for, for the most part. So, you know, there, there are particular people who I read their stuff and I'm like, nah, that's fine. And yes, there's ecologies and networks and whatever. But I mean, um, but I just, it doesn't bother me because I see it as a kind of offshoot or side effect of this very important challenge to the language-centered um, version of things. But I, I would that. say that I also, I mean, part, so partly it's a difference in terms of the time that we come into the field and what's considered the, the norm. So you know, the norm that you're encountering in a very theory-centric program at South Carolina is different than the norm that I encountered, you know, 20 years ago uh, in, that, in a different circumstance. So. Right. I can't, I can't see the progression as clearly as you guys, obviously. I mean, like, so the, the, the reaction against the linguistic or social turn uh, sort of generated the, the material turn, but now that is sedimented. I mean, as long as I've been in grad school, the material turn has been the rule. It's been like this is what we should be focused on. Yeah, but but, but Nate, read RSQ. Read RSQ though. It's not there. Well, I mean, right. It's not. No, like, right, you but, don't have it. No, you're right. I, I mean, again, some of the best uh, rhetorical theorists, at the least theory types. The theory yeah, the, the types, theory yes, I agree with you. The theory types are into a, some variation of uh, some kind of material, which, you know. Which, again, is not, it's not bad in itself. I mean, Debbie, you brought up Debbie. I mean, she's sort of an interesting case because she's still writing about language. I mean, she's, yeah. she's incorporating um, 
animal subject matter and in a in a kind of a strange way but it's like at least her recent book um rhetoric and tooth and claw like it's about the effects of animality on language or vice versa it's, so it's it's this constant co-productive uh movement there right. which is more nuanced uh than you know the the strict adherence to like an ecological uh yeah i agree orientation yeah 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 I mean, but, but that's, the, that's the sense in which, so that's a way of responding to Nathaniel's question. Like, history matters in the sense of when we enter into the discourse and how it gets configured for us is going to determine to a certain extent our allies, our alliances, and our, our affinities. And yet I can still say that I feel like this conversation, or rather that conversation, the, the materiality v. language, is idealism versus materialism is mm -hmm. foundationalism versus anti-foundationalism is you know we can just play rationally right yeah. we can play that whole thing back and now to be clear each of those iterations is distinctive and i don't want to simply again i, I feel like i'm just saying hegel like i'm just speaking mm -hmm. the hegelian historical line like each of those iterations is distinctive i don't simply want to conflate them but for me mm -hmm. i increasingly lend towards like our conversations in philosophy are always are, are just variations on themes. Like that's what we've been doing is we've been ta we've taken a series of musical notes and then we just run variations on those musical notes. And then a hundred years later, you know, a bunch of people are doing variations on those notes and they just and they have the same relations among them. They have the same uh, um, aversions and affinities and 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 we and it's like well what has what has changed other than the terminology, the people, the cultural specificity, which is a lot, but that the conversation is uh, really not all that different. But just as, it, it, sorry, just one quick point about music to, yeah. <laughs> just yeah, as I, yeah, like in, it, in music, when the farther and farther you travel away from, you know, home base, the, the tonal note, the more complex the music gets. So the more you differentiate, the more you travel away from home, uh, the and you know it's it's much more dissonant it's more confusing but that's where the complexity of music lies and to me it's the same thing with uh with theory or philosophy the more you're willing to to travel away from what you're comfortable with that sort of comfort of that that tonic note like that's that you get into this really uncomfortable space but you end up basically you can't endorse anything that's the hegelian position right. you're just differentiating and moving away from from targets as opposed to you know reifying them yeah i think i mean i i, I already kind of said this but i i think that the major difference again is um the way you think historicity and it'd be i think what i'm suggesting is you have to think historicity without a line like there's very clearly a line of progression for hegel yeah and I, I think the kind of historicity that you're talking about has no line because there can be no progression. There is just a mass of stuff and it's constantly differently articulating and self-transforming, yep. but there is, there, there is no line that it's running out. It's, it's, it's all never glad before. Hands. It's all glad <laughs> yes. you know, it's just <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah, which means that like appropriation happens all the time. I, I think this is the other big difference in styles of appropriation is is in that sense of history, there are there's a multiplicity of appropriations, right? There are mm -hmm. appropriations of different size and volume and intensity and speed and whatever else that are 
there's always a bigger fish kind of appropriation, right? Well, that's, the, that's the like the it's like the synthesis and anti Oedipus from Hegel uh, for, from Kant, right? Like the conjunctive yeah. disjunctive like yeah, there are different types of syntheses. There are, yeah. are, are different modes of relation conceptual relationality, you know, and that that's where the activity is actually happening, you know, is the is the different types of syntheses that occur. But the but with Hegel, there's only one kind, and it only goes in one direction, and they're never right. the smaller ones are always a part of a more coherent whole, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so the ultimate at a, at a macro level, there's only one appropriation. It, it looks something like got to do the hand gestures, right? Which is great for um, <laughs> audio uh, audio only podcast. Yeah. But, you know, there's the whole, and excuse the fact that I have two hands, but then there's the self-differentiation and then the reappropriation and the self, but it's always at the level of the whole, right? Yep. Um, and yeah, that, that's just totally different than, you know, a thousand and one kinds of appropriations and a thousand and one kinds of synthesis that happen at different scales that never constitute a whole. And yeah. that, that gives two different senses of history. Yeah, I mean, I think you're you're both right, and, and in terms of like playing out the these differences between a kind of Deleuzian perspective and the Hegelian one, but I do think that totality or unity in Hegel is is based in a principle of like dissolution or non-resolution. So the totality for Hegel is kind of the same thing as a multiplicity, if you think about it, because. You know, it's about it's about trying to reckon with that totality. The totality is not something comforting. It's the it's yeah. the historical the the enfolding of of temporality into itself. So it's like this is a this is a totality that that gives us virtually no comfort at all. And how do we reckon with that? It's not the it's not the same thing as like a as Descartes' unified subject. Right. Oh, I agree with that certainly. I mean, there's no question that. Mm -hmm. The necessity of negation, and you know, when he says subject is pure negation, like subjectivity at its core mm -hmm. is pure negation, right? Like, mm -hmm. um, there, there's no way that you could get the Cartesian subject from from that. Um, mm -hmm. So, so I mean, I, I I agree with you, and and so you're right. Like, you can get that. I mean, again, that's where I mean, I just end up continually coming back to this notion of. I guess I'm less interested, maybe I'm starting to become less interested in the explanatory force of philosophy and more interested in the, what I would simply call like the sexiness of it, right? Like how yeah. cool is this thing? How interesting is this thing? How, how I mean, that's it, right? Like so that's, it's just another song and it's, it's just mm. a question. And the song is not, you know, the explanatory force that the song has is less interesting than can you dance to it. You know, mm -hmm. can, well, can I take sexiness to the next level? What is it, Genesis, right? Mm -hmm. What mm -hmm. Genesis? You're talking Phil Collins now. I can hear you. I felt like we've been going been going too serious for too long, so I needed to interject. <laughs> true, true. Yeah, that's good. Some Phil Collins comedy. But, well, let, since we since we we burned our first hour, which we're so, about to do. <laughs> but no, look, I actually think that this conversation is an important one, right? I mean, yeah. for, for, I mean, for yeah. us, a lot of what I, a lot of what I've been a lot of what I've been blurting out is sort of stuff that's been churning in me as yeah. we've been reading and writing and writing notes yeah. on this stuff.
at least in my reading, you know, in, in terms of my project, this works so cleanly as a critique of empiricism or of someone like Barad, because empiricism purports to know the, the real shape of knowledge. It, it's, again, it's that about the world that's the pre-reflexive uh, kind of disposition. So, uh, you know, it, it's empiricism rather than Hegel's idealism that's the actually naive kind of, uh, so many isms in here, but is the actually naive formalism because it doesn't recognize itself as such. It's just, the, like, right, so it's, it's focused on imminent relations. That's the claim of Barad. Uh, we're, we're focused on relations before relata. Well, that becomes just another religion. Uh, for someone like Hegel. The imminence is already given. It's not truly interrogated like how we got there. I, I completely agree that, that um, and, and, and particularly I, I agree with um, empiricism, which imagines that it doesn't deal with form, it just deals with stuff. And because it thinks that it's just dealing with stuff, it ignores the form that produced that stuff and it takes it just as an artifact. Right? Exactly, yep. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, it doesn't. Okay, so yeah. he, if one does a generous reading, either here or, or, or of Barad, I feel like if if the claim is that phenomena are primarily relations, that can't be a commentary on the world. It has to be a commentary on a relation, right? Mm -hmm. it, it has to be. I mean, wh whether it says so explicitly or not, like here's what we've discovered: relations are primary. Ah, well, that's the new God term. Then we're going to go around looking, ah, there's a relation, there's a relation, there's a relation. It's like, no, you, you haven't just discovered relations. You've discovered, because they're not just things in the world, that relationality is itself the product of relation. You know, so it's, I mean, it would have to be built in that the perception of relationality is itself a relative or a relational perception. So, you know, it couldn't be, it couldn't make claims about the world, um, you know, given that, it's, given that its thesis is relationality. It couldn't just say, here's what really is true. It's now relations when we thought it was something else. Here's what's really out there. You well, that's what I would it. normally like to think Barat does, but it's, you know, when I was preparing for, to, to read Nate's um, uh, prospectus, I read... Um, I forget which article by Barad, but like the big one uh, that makes that claim about the post, the post humanist, post humanist. Yeah, mm -hmm. and the one that complains about too much language. We need to go back to right. the material, right. and they're like she really explicitly in several places starts talking about these relations as like the basic units. Of, yeah, I agree. Yeah, right, and and that yeah, like that's where I I think that she's she's doing exactly what. What Nate suggests, and then so the question is, I mean, you're right. I think your read is the more generous read, and so the the question would be to like, what happens when you say, all right, these are the basic units, and guess what they aren't stuff, or you can't do what you think you're doing with them. So let's take this brilliant insight that you have, run it through the rest of your discourse, and see how it gets how it remakes what you're saying. Make or the, the, or the other the other twist the back on the question of reading is to say. Given that she can't be making claims about the empirical world, given that it's relational, yes. then the claims that she appears to be making about the empirical world aren't that. And, and yes. so, it, so that would be the way of attributing to her an awareness or self-consciousness of the thing that she's doing, as opposed to 
you know, correcting and saying like, well, she doesn't understand the value of her own insights. I will add, I will add that in. There's another way of reading that, which is she has to understand the value of her own insights. Otherwise, her thing doesn't make any sense. And so that's, that's what I take what Zizek has done for Hegel is he, mm-hmm. you know, he, he does that second move, which is to say, this isn't me correcting Hegel's insights. This is just what Hegel does, and there's no other, you know, Hegel doesn't make sense if you don't think of it. Like, if you, if you really buy the progressive line, it doesn't make any sense. And, and I, I mean, I get that. I think that that's a fair point, right? Like, you can't really have progress from pure negation. I mean, you, you know, you just can't get there from here. And so all of those claims to progress have to be doing something else. They can't actually be claims about progress. So do you attribute it to them as something that they've done consciously or not? For Hegel, it matters, obviously. But for us, like in terms of Barat, who cares whether she's conscious of it or not? You say, like, her work can't allow her to make what looks like empirical claims. And so, therefore, these can't be empirical claims, even though they sound and smell like empirical claims. So what other kind of claims is she making there? Right. It, it does, it, it, I mean, you're right, you know, you're right in the fact that she can't be wrong. It's, that, it's not simply that Barad is wrong, it's that yeah. she, she does uh, tend towards the language of origin and primordiality. Yeah. Uh, specifically when it comes to these terms like phenomena and, and, and relationality. And it's like the, the, the thing that she doesn't, she doesn't flip it back over. So it's, it's still an equal sign for her. But, you know, Hegel's famous substance is subject. For Barad, it's the other way around. And only the, it's, it's subject is substance. And that's, that's, how, that's the predicative logic for Barad. Substance comes first, and the subjectivity is a species of materiality. Um, and so conceptuality comes after materiality as a variation of that. And that, that's, again, that's not a claim that she like outright makes, but that's the, that's the sort of logic of, of the entire book. Yeah, it can, it can be, halfway. but that's what, that's what I'm saying. Like you can read that right, right. Di- differently. And that, that's where it is. A, that's for me, it comes back to a style question is that like, you know, if, if that can be read against the, re, the, the, the approach that you just proposed, if it's possible to do so, then, then you're pursuing that line is a stylistic dispositional choice. It's not, it's not that you're For right sure. or wrong. Like, we can throw that right. out in terms of being right and wrong about Barad or about anyone who's, you know, doing any of this stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, so, it's, so that's where I say to you, and, and a lot of what I was responding to in your, like, the, dis, the proposal defense and that sort of shit is, like, why are you so insistent on telling people that they're wrong instead of just, because you can, you can flip that coin. And yeah. you can do, for instance, when I was talking before, like, w- about the generous reading stuff for the invention book, like, I was quite well aware and conscious of the fact that when I was doing that with some of these figures, I was doing a kind of violence, or it felt like I was doing a kind of violence. Like, the violence was, I'm going to make them more interesting than their own thing is, you know, mm-hmm. or my perception of that. I'm not, you know, whatever. But I'm going to make them more interesting, but I'm going to attribute it to them. Right, like I'm going to say, so and so's article on audience in rhetorical studies is is actually more interesting than it than it seems like it is. That it does these other things, and I wasn't attributing the agency to me of having done that work. I'm attributing it to the to the writing as having done that work, and and mm-hmm. by doing that, you lose the edge of critique, 
right? You know, that it just becomes like, hey, it might look like this is empiricism for Broad, but obviously it can't be given that her object, quote unquote object, is relationality, and relationality right. ain't a fucking object. So it, she, it, it would look like she's making a claim about the primordial nature of relationality, which can't be. So those claims have to function otherwise. And this is where Barad gets really interesting is in her, her, her kind of, you know, it's the same things that you like about Zizek and Hegel. Her, she's not averse to making empirical, transcendent, essentializing claims. It's like, well, that's pretty right. cool, right? So suddenly Barad could start to look like Zizek in that regard, mm -hmm. you know? You're right, you're right. I mean, if you uh, think of it as an equation, the equation that you gave before where subject equals substance, then you say, mm -hmm. all right, well, that would, under a normal reading of substance, that would run you into all of these empirical kinds of claims. But given the way that she articulates substance, then that entire equation needs to get rethought, and which means that Barad's implementation or incorporation into the rhetorical field has suddenly this much more productive avenue to go down because the it's entire it has to, it's a little antigen that gets in there. Well, substance got to get remade. You're you're right. What's interesting about this conversation right now to me though is that I don't think we would have gotten that more interesting version, potentially more interesting version of Barad that you just articulated that you both did without me confronting the text initially. That's so, fine. Sure. That's fine. You know what I, you know what I mean? It's like. What I'm doing, even if it's uh, confrontational or kind of, you know, even adversarial. arrogant, adversarial, like that's, per it's generative of something. Somebody's going to respond to that. I mean, that's kind of what it's sure. designed to do. So I'm sure. open to more interesting versions of Barad, but I haven't seen those. So that's what I'm pushing, you know, that's what I want. It's that, it's that Barad gets codified as this, uh, you know, just this sort of mantra of relationality right. that just becomes, again, it becomes this shapeless... Uh, version of you know interpretation sure. that you know people just ape her and there's just less and less interesting barads out there. Your version of it requires the sort of adversarial agential you know adversarial role that you played to to then have us offer a kind of synthesis move. But what I'm sort of saying is you could have done that on your own in reading her. Right, and, and that other people in reading her didn't do that, um, and, and I, I certainly grant that. I, I, I unequivocally grant that. But that you know, and I'm not saying it's your responsibility. I'm not saying that at all. I'm simply saying the move is one that doesn't require the distinction of steps that you're talking about. Like I don't think you first have to have the adversarial relation, and then have right. to have a synthetic moment that you can have just a sort of you know a move that says, all right, well. Without being adversarial, what's her claim here given that it can't be what it looks like or what I think it looks like? That's what we all do when we're learning discourses, right? Mm -hmm. Is we just, we're like, what the fuck are they saying? Because I don't really know Aristotle. I'm reading Aristotle for the first time and it seems to be saying this, but it couldn't possibly be because it just said that. So what do I do with that? Before we become trained in what Aristotle said, we always mm -hmm. do those kinds of moves to try to figure stuff out. And, and so I'm saying, like, you don't have to have the adversary synthesis, negation synthesis move, right. you know, as discreetly, that's all. Mm -hmm. uh, although the critical work can 
open up a lot. I mean, I, I think the only issue for me is whether or not the critical move is there to erase or dismiss the the, the other position. But like, if the, the if the goal of the of the criticism is to say, all right, everyone is taking Barad up as the sort of um, uh, monologic thing without. And, and it's very difficult for anything new to come out of it. I'll be the wrecking ball that crashes into it, that forces yeah, okay. people to actually have to grapple with some of this stuff. Right. And yeah, I might have some inclination for some interesting ways in which that goes, but that is already kind of predetermining the path that it's going to go. And I'm more interested in, um, well, to use some of that language, diffracting, <laughs> like mm-hmm. running myself mm-hmm. into it as a diffractor that will that will make a lot of these upshot or uh, these uptakes untenable, and then not end that essay with or the dissertation with, and now we should ignore Barad, but say like, no, right. now this is the beginning where we start grappling with some of this really important stuff that Barad has given us the opportunity to deal with. Mm-hmm. So that's a way of saying like. The, the 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 negative critique moment can't be an end point. It it, it has right. to be it has to be a sort of starting point, and from which that's where for me when I do do critique, I always find that once the sort of critique thing is done, I have to you know I've sort of mapped out the you know here's why relationality can't be an object or the equivalent thereof, and I will always go back and say and Barad shows us that in these mm. in these moments in her text. Right, and, and so I'll always then fold it back into the thing and say, this thing was there, it just took a process for me to get to saying that this thing was there, right? I mean, right. that's what, what I often like about Deleuze is he skips that process, right? Like, mm-hmm. he's just like, everybody knows Barad is the great thinker of non-empiricism or, or of a spiritualized materialism. Advanced empiricism. Yeah, whatever. Advanced empiricism. Well, like transcendental empiricism is the term right, that right, right. gets bandied about. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, like, cool, right? Like, that's that's one way of doing it, of folding it back into the thing, even though you have to unpack it. But still, I mean, so, but coming back to this passage, and it relates, is I still am hung up on the extrinsic and intrinsic thing. Like, the necessity... Mm-hmm. The necessity of self-originating, self-differentiating wealth of shapes, that that's the good, the good sort of manifestation mm-hmm. of spirit, is that it must be, it's very Aristotelian in that regard, right? Like, it must be generated from the self and not be externally imposed, because external imposition would be... You know that that's the, that's the boring show of diversity. It's just like it's the cookie cutter, method driven. But an internal self differentiation is not right. Mm. Um, I, I don't. Yeah. M- maybe I mean maybe Nathaniel, do your do what you said again, and let me listen to it better. I'll, I'll listen I, to it tonight. I mean I'll listen to it tonight when we listen to the audio. Yeah, audience. you can always listen. I, 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 I yeah. I, I mean I think the the line between the. Um, uh, internal and external and esoteric and exoteric is, is very, very thin because the exoteric comes from the esoteric and the um, and what's the internal language here? I mean, I think so one comes from the other and it's not a sign, like the external is not that which comes from 
other than the, the notion, because that would be impossible with an Hegelianism. That's right? what I that's what I think, right? But when he says so, so this but is a closer an, inspection that shows that this expansion has not come about through one and the same principle spontaneously assuming different shapes, but rather through the shapeless repetition of one and the same formula only externally applied to diverse materials, thereby obtaining the boring show of diversity. The idea, which is of course true enough on its own account, remains in effect always in a primitive condition if its development involves nothing more than this sort of repetition of the same repetition of the same formula. When the okay, so here's an example of that. I'll, I'll try to, to, to try to um, stick closer to what we're doing. Take like some version of relativism, right? As as a um, as an intellectual progression within the unveiling of spirit and relativism begins as this very simple notion that these um, you know identities are not atomistic that they're not you know self-sustaining and it continually critiques and shows um, uh, the non-identity of all of these supposed identities and it's constantly spontaneously demonstrating and working through the, the specifics of relativism to the point where it matures itself to the point where it can just very easily show no identity is self-identical and that it's always presumed upon a prior relationship and and that's all it can say and that's when you know it's not that um it's not that some new external comes in, but it's that the inside externalizes itself and calcifies to the point where it can only render the world and only can encounter the world by demonstrating um, failed identities as actual relationships. And that's when everything becomes cookie cutter. So it's actually a matter of intensification rather than the introduction of something new. And that yeah, requires that husk to get broken through by something else, perhaps a return to a more interesting version of essentialism, right? Mm -hmm. Or a more nuanced version of relativism or something like that, mm -hmm. that then has to go yeah. back and remake all of this stuff. That's the way I'm reading it. Yeah, the, the, empirical, the empirical orientation is a failed formalism for Hegel because it doesn't recognize itself as such. Ma materiality is posited. That's, that was Butler's point that I, I put in my prospectus that I think you, you kind of bristled against, John. Like, mm -hmm. so I was trying to articulate like, the complexity of Butler's sort of mm -hmm. notional yeah. framework here, and she basically says that materiality has to be posited. That's its constitutive condition. And what that means, for the empiricist, that's not the case. And materiality is out there in the world to be seen and appreciated and worked upon, and you know it's our job to do that. For an idealist, for for Hegel, for post-Hegelians, matter must be positive, which means that the presupposition is primary. It's the, it's the same as the Nietzschean point about the, the the metaphorics of 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 sense perception and conceptuality. Matter must be posited, and then you must also forget that process of positing it, and and so that's inescapable. So the empiricist mindset is, in a sense, inescapable, but you can reflect on it, and you can turn it over and then recognize right. that capacity. 
So this would, in other words, the kind of empiricism that you're talking about here isn't a traditional empiricism, but an empirical orientation to just anything. In other words, there is that kind of empirical impulse within, say, rationalism, where the positing of rationalism is forgotten, that now suddenly, you know, the kinds of artifacts that rationalism is, is capable of producing just get replicated um, uh, senselessly, or however he puts it here, over Boring and over show again. Of diversity, yeah. Because yeah. we're leading into the night in which all cows are black, right? I mean, that's where right. that's where this is going to go. Is that these are just sort of, I mean, monochromatic formalism says it perfectly. So we've got you have diversity in this system. I guess I do think of it in. I actually think of it in the terms of, you know, like here's a mammal, here's a reptile, here's a, mm -hmm. right, like here's right. The, the, the category, and then you, you know, you discover lots of diverse things, insects, birds, whatever, whatever, it, but, but that uh, the diversity is all, always underwritten by an implicit taxonomy yeah. of, of species genus. To uh, the point where you, where everybody knows that the platypus is a mammal, right? Right. Right. Now that thing's a mammal, and nothing's a nothing's a mammal. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, but I, again, I st I just have issues with the internal external sort of f framing of that because it, it because as you said, it just doesn't seem to me that anything could be externally imposed given the sort of condition of spirit, and this becomes a, for, to my reading, a sort of subtle way of saying, well, you can't really do a critique except for I'm going to do it here. You know, um, Think about the um, internal and external sides of, say, like your skin, right? That it's, you know, the externality isn't out here outside of my skin. The external externality is just the surface of the skin that's not doing all that much. It's already been genesis by some, you know, gene. And now it's just doing its much more limited, you know, dead skin thing. Uh, that's the way I see it, is that it's not, like, there's no space between the internal and the external. Mm -hmm.